Heidelberg Catechism. This is found on page 517 in the back of the book of praise, the back of the songbook, and we'll read that together. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. What do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? First, how great my sins and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. And third, how I am to be thankful to God for such deliverance. So far, the reading from the Confession of the Church. After the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we'll sing together in response to it, hymn 24. Hymn 24 after the sermon. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, now I know that here in Emmanuel, you have recently completed another journey through the Heidelberg Catechism, and, and that now you're beginning your way through one of the other confessions of the church. You've started in Canons of Dort. But having completed your trek through the Heidelberg Catechism, I think it's appropriate then that today you get to reflect on the very beginning of that journey and remember why it is such a precious thing that as the church, we make good use of the confessions of the church. The purpose, the purpose and the great blessing of doing this, of being taught these things is quite apparent from Lord's Day 1, this unspeakable comfort and joy that we are able to have as those who, who have been told the wonderful things that God has done. So for, for any guests who are here uh, with us, guests who are um, on the live stream who aren't familiar with uh, this thing that we have called the Heidelberg Catechism or, or with the practice of using any sort of, of catechism uh, as a teaching tool in the churches, in the churches perhaps it's fitting that we take a little bit of time to, to explain what it is that we're doing here this afternoon. Well, this particular catechism that we have, the Heidelberg Catechism, it came about because well, about 500 years ago, there was someone called Elector Frederick III, and he was the governor of, uh, a, a, it's called the Palatinate, so a, a part of the Holy Roman Empire, and this was during the period 
immediately following the Protestant Reformation. So that whole known world was Roman Catholic, and there was a uh, there was a return to the Word of God and the correct teaching about our salvation. And so there was this huge uh, flow out of the Roman Catholic Church into uh, what we would call the, the Protestant churches. And this man, this ruler, uh, he was very much concerned with the lack of knowledge, the lack of general knowledge that all the people seem to have in the church about the very basic truths of the Bible, the truths of the gospel, of salvation, and especially he was concerned about, about the youth, the children of the church. And so, you know, people, people uh, had been brought up their whole lives in the church, and they couldn't answer basic questions about, about what the nature of sin was or, or why, you know, Jesus Christ had to come to earth and take on the form of a human being. Um, they didn't know things like the Lord's Prayer or the Ten Commandments. And so this was a remedy to that, to, to educate, to teach the people of God what exactly is in the Bible and, and what, what does God want us to know in order to rest comfortably in Him and to be amazed at all of the things that He has done for us. And so he commissioned this catechism, Lessons on a Summary of the gospel, all the things that we ought to know as Christians. And this particular one that we have here, it was designed so that instructors, you know, pastors and teachers of the church, they could have a system where all of the basic beliefs, the things that we must know about salvation, they could be taught on a cycle over and over. And that's why um, if you flip through your catechism, you can see that there are, are 52 Lord's Days, and the idea would be that you, you do one of them per week, and so you get through the whole thing in one year. Now, we don't stick to that slavishly as churches. It generally takes us probably a year and a half, maybe even sometimes two years, to get, to get through the Heidelberg Catechism. But this, uh, it forms the framework for our afternoon services in the church, and we work our way through it over and over and we're taught whatever we must know concerning the gospel of salvation. We learn these truths, basic truths. Why is there sin in the world? Why are we sinners? Why aren't we perfect? What, what is the cost of sin? What are the consequences of sin? What do we have to believe about those things? And a lot of those topics are taught in certain areas, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, and, and most catechisms have uh, an exposition of those things. So as churches, we've decided that in our afternoon services, we're going to work our way through the catechism regularly, and, and this is an incredibly beneficial practice for all of us. It ensures that, that preachers who are very weak people that they don't pigeonhole themselves into topics that they never stray away from and they forget to teach the people of God the things that they need to know. Um, it ensures that the whole counsel of God is preached as much as possible, that everything necessary for salvation is taught from beginning to end. This is something that the Apostle Paul um, assured the elders of Ephesus it, uh, of in Acts chapter 20 when 
it's a very tearful goodbye. He has been walking alongside these elders for all of this time, planted the church there, and then, and then nurtured them in the faith. And he knows that this is the last time, probably, that he's going to see them. And he says to them, he says, I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole purpose or the whole counsel of God. He taught them everything, everything they needed to know. That doesn't mean that, that he went through every single solitary word of Scripture and explained everything there is to know about every single word, and he turned them into sort of, you know, doctors of philosophy who could each one of them give, give, give a, a, a full-blown lecture on every verse of Scripture. No, that's not what he did. He taught them all of the fundamentals so that they could teach the church and they would know Jesus Christ and understand how to walk with him as the church. So this is the very good practice that we continue today. We're very blessed by what we do here in these afternoon services. So we come to the first questions and answers of this catechism. And if we've been brought up in the church, well, we know that it's coming. What is your only comfort in life and death? It's Lord's Day 1 is one of the one of the landmark uh, questions and answers uh, that, that if we aren't able to commit most of it to memory, at least maybe this one we have committed to our memory, right? But does it strike anybody as, as a little bit strange that this is where we start? That this is how we, we set off on everything there is to know about our salvation? Um, you know, the, the idea of comfort, like that's the first thing that's brought up. Why is that? Why isn't the first question, who is God? Or, or who is Jesus? Or why is this world here? Or who am I? You know, w- wouldn't that sort of bang get, get a little more directly to the point? Well, it's fitting for us to notice that, that this instruction in the truth, this is the doctrine of the church, this truth is firmly rooted in Scripture and shaped by, by really serious theology. This is church doctrine. This instruction is intensely personal. And it's warm. It's pastoral. It's meant to comfort you and to assure you in the midst of all the hard things of life. You can see it immediately with the pronouns that are used. Who is the, the questioner here addressing? What is your only comfort? You are being addressed. Not you, you as the church, yes, you are being addressed, but each one of you as well. And that's apparent, that's apparent in the answer. It's not that we are not our own. No, the answer is that I am not my own. This is for each one of us to really wrestle with, and to really uh, come into our hearts. This I, I am not my own. Some people call it the, the comforted I of the catechism. Your instructor cares very much about how you personally come to the knowledge of your creator and your redeemer and about your life with him. There's an acknowledgement here of the reality of the human experience. Life is not easy. 
It's not easy. It's hard. Life has pain, so much pain in it, so much sorrow, so much loneliness. There's disease and heartbreak, indescribable loss, anxiety, depression, things that can, can absolutely cripple anyone. We need comfort. We're met sort of where we are in life. This is our condition. This is the state in which we find ourselves. And God's word comes to us in that state and says, this is where you are. Now what are we going to do about it? Philosophers and psychologists, they, they recognize this fact, this desire for comfort. Because it's true. It's, 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 it's apparent. It's apparent in every stage of life. There's an idea in some Greco-Roman philosophies that if you boil everything else out of life, that you can conclude that the purpose in our lives, and, and this, is, this is the successful life, the purpose of our lives is to rid ourselves of anxiety and somehow get peace, somehow get, have comfort. Even, even babies, the very first thing that they do, you know, they're, they're, they're anxious for a full belly, they cry, their only purpose for that time is to fill their belly and, and be at peace. And when they have a full belly, boy, everything's right with the world. Different anxieties for different seasons of life. One discomfort is resolved and then the next one happens. And if, humanly speaking, there's, there's absolutely no escape from it. We can have a momentary comfort from some anxiety, but then once that one is resolved, a new one comes in and, and takes its place until the very last obstacle, the very last hurdle, the last challenge to be overcome is met, and that one is death. And we need to know, how can we have comfort at the end of our life? What's going to happen? Do we just get snuffed out of existence? Or is there something else coming from that? And even that uncertainty that people have about all of this can be a source of great discomfort and anxiety. We have a desire for comfort, you know, wired into our DNA. But the catechism here echoes the Word of God by teaching that there is only one true comfort possible, that every other comfort is temporary and is replaced by a new anxiety or form of suffering, but the comfort that God gives, it answers everything. It fills everything and is an eternal comfort. The comfort that brings eternal peace and undiminishing comfort is this, I belong to Jesus. That's it. I belong to Jesus. That's the answer that we're given in question and answer one. We have a, and then we have this summary or an explanation of what that means. And so we'll see in this sermon, number one, that having come or belonging to Jesus means that number one, I was redeemed, and number two, I am renewed, or I am redeemed and I am renewed. So number one, I am redeemed. So when I teach this Lord's Day to a class of catechism students, one of the exercises that I like to do with them, it seems to be really helpful, 
is to ask the students to rephrase this question because there's a lot of words in here, a lot of clauses, a lot of explanation. Um, I asked them to rephrase these questions and answers into the simplest form possible. Boil it down to one idea. That's the main idea and, and the rest of it is an explanation of that idea. So if we boil this one down, what is your only comfort in life and death? What's the answer that we have there? It is this. I belong to Jesus. We need comfort in life, and the only real comfort we have is this. I belong to him. Everything else here in that question and answer, it explains that idea. What does it mean to belong to Jesus? Well, if we go through here, number one, um, I I don't belong to myself. I'm not a self-sufficient being. I belong to Jesus. In life and in death, with my body and my soul, I belong to him. Why? Because he paid an incalculable price for me. That's that second paragraph in, in, uh, in that answer. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He paid for it with his life. And he has set me free from the power of the devil. That means the devil cannot rule over me anymore. And it means... Now that I have a very special relationship with God, our Father. We get to call Him Father now. And He cares for every single aspect of my life. Not even a hair can fall from my head without His command, permission, will. Not one bit of harm can come to me without my Father's will. He's steering me toward salvation, toward eternal life. And and since I belong to Jesus, now he makes a spirit live in me to assure me and and to give me all of these new qualities, these these spiritual qualities to be in my heart. All right, that's basically, that's question and answer one. I belong to Jesus and that's what this looks like. And we can see right after that the beauty of, of the structure of the catechism here. Okay, we, we've established that, okay, I belong to Jesus. I can know that I belong to him and I receive every benefit that is available from, from being with him, from belonging to him. And because of that, in order to fully grasp the comfort of that, I need to know everything that was just explained. Number one, how great my sins and misery are. Number two, how it came to be that I was delivered from all of that. And now number three, how to live that new life. How to live a thankful life with God because of that salvation. And, and the whole rest of the catechism is split up into those three sections. Everything we need to know in order to live in the joy of the comfort of belonging to Christ. That first thing that explained there, though, that's explained is the fact that I am redeemed by Christ. That's the, that's the heartbeat of the gospel. I am redeemed by Christ. We recognize that God created this world, and he created a, a beautiful and perfect universe. There was no flaw in it. People were created in the perfect image of God. 
true righteousness, holiness, their relationship with God was, there was nothing lacking in it. But then something really bad happened. There was this fall into sin, and it wrecked our relationship with God. We were destined to death and, and, and suffering, but then we were saved from that destruction through the work of Jesus Christ. That's, in a nutshell, the story of the gospel. God created us to be in a relationship with him. We wrecked it, and he fixed it. I have been saved from death. I have been redeemed. That's what question and answer one is getting us to think about at the, at the very beginning of this. And, and, and really take stock of not only our comfort in life, but our comfort in death. There's a certainty of death in this life. It's pretty easy for us, especially in Western culture, to, to not really think about it all that much because we have uh, quite a high expectancy of life and with modern medicine, you can live quite comfortably and so it doesn't seem like you're quite in danger of death at every turn like human beings were at other points in history. But every once in a while, we're starkly reminded of it when when. The world is plunged into war, or when death comes to a loved one, someone close to us, when their life comes to a close, we're reminded suddenly that that's where we're heading as well. We have to somehow come to grips with that and be able to be comforted in the reality of death. And it's not just a, a physical death that we have to have comfort in. We know because of what God has taught us that because of our sin, we were completely enslaved to sin completely unable to break free of its influence and of its influence and, and this because of the justice of God requires a, an eternal punishment that's spiritual death which is by far it's so much worse and so much pain so much more painful so much more severe than than what physical death holds for us death and sin go together but what a message that Jesus Christ completely destroyed whatever hold sin and death had over you. It did have its hold over you. But Jesus Christ removed that. We read earlier in Romans chapter 6, verse 2, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? We have been United to Christ in his death. That's verse 5. In verse 11, we're instructed to count ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ 
our Lord, he was put to death as a sacrifice, as a payment for, for our sins. He was put to death and, and he bore the burden of God's wrath in such a way that we wouldn't have to bear it up. And as he was doing this, he was also putting to death our sinful nature. That's what the Apostle Paul is teaching here in Romans chapter 6, that when we were slaves to sin, when we were dead to sin, that means that every aspect of our nature was inclined to, to not do what's right, but to do what is evil, and there was nothing that we could do about it. We were slaves to it in the same way that, that any slave doesn't get to decide what to do and then, and then go choose the thing that he would like to do. No, he has a master, and his master instructs him what to do, and he has to do that thing, and he has no choice in the matter. That's our relationship with sin, without Christ. We could do nothing but sin. Sin was our master. But if we are united to Christ in his death, that means that our old nature is crucified, it's put to death, it's buried with him. And so that no longer has mastery over us. Our sinful nature is put to death. That's what's meant by being redeemed. I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We once belonged to the kingdom of darkness and sin and Satan, but Jesus Christ, by his sacrifice, has, has pulled us out of that and brought us to be with himself, rescued us from a life of sin. We belong to him, and because of that, we are infinitely indebted to him. Sin is not our master anymore. Our new master is Jesus Christ. And what a beautiful thing to, to think and reflect about what that means. Jesus Christ is the best master that, that we could ever imagine. Serving Christ, belonging to him, being a slave of Christ, as the Apostle Paul calls himself, that's not, that's not slavish labor. It's a beautiful life. We have a master we have a master who loves us. We have a master, one who is the master of our lives. He loves us so much that he laid down his life for us, and now he gives us a new way of life, a life that is in accord with the way that we were designed to live in the first place. Harmony with God, in love with God, in love with one another. Belonging to Christ is the only way to truly be free. Holy life in beautiful friendship, partnership with God. And if we know, if we know these things, if we know that we belong to Jesus Christ, then we are able to live then in an extremely confident security. Here's this comforted I again. If I know that I have been redeemed by Christ, well then what does that mean for the rest of my life? If I know that I am someone that God the Father has taken and given to His Son Jesus Christ, what does that mean for, for the rest of my existence? Well, it means I don't have anything to be afraid of at all, ever. 
There's nothing, absolutely nothing to fear, absolutely nothing to be anxious about because my life is precious to God. I know that God, my Father, will care perfectly for me. I'm precious to Him. This is something we read in Romans 5, 8 through 10. If you really want to have a sense of, of, of the affection, the love that God has for us, and each of you should be able to say this, the love that God, my Father, has for me, then I just have to think about what He has done. Romans 5, 8 through 10, God demonstrates His love in that while we were still sinners or while we were still weak, Christ died for us. This is something that we hear every single time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And this, is, this should assure us of the security of our lives. Even while we were still in our sins, before Jesus Christ redeemed us in time, God cared for you so deeply that He was willing to send His Son, the this, this Son that He loves, his beloved son, I'm going to send him to suffer unspeakable things, to suffer the full weight of my wrath, to be forsaken by me, to undergo every punishment that every single one of you is supposed to have. God the Father says, I'm sending my son to bear all of that for you. This is how he treats his enemies. If this is how God treats his enemies, well then, how does he treat us now that we are his friends, that we are his children? Romans 5, verse 10. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, which we are today, now, now that we are reconciled, much more shall we be saved by his life. Now we can have a full confidence, no doubt whatsoever, that whatever blessing is available in Christ, God will confer that to you. If he was willing to send his son, well, he's very willing to finish what he has begun. How much more precious to him am I now that such a price has been paid for me? My father must be caring perfectly for me if he would pay such such an incalculable price now is he gonna let it all go to waste and let you be harmed irreparably of course not not a hair can fall from my head without his will that is comfort that's comfort when life is pressing down when when i'm sad or afraid when i'm facing my death i have comfort why because I belong to Jesus. He's redeemed me and he is also renewing me. That's the second aspect of belonging to Christ. Not only is, is all of our debt covered, not only is all of our sin paid for, our relationship restored, but we're also given a brand new way of life, a good way of life. We had that first hint in Romans 6, 4 through 5, or 4 and 5. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Our old nature is put to death. It's done. We don't have to live that way anymore. Being, being blind, walking in, in sin and darkness, we've been raised to a new life. The only kind of life that there is. Life with God. Life that is in accord with his goodness, his precepts. He makes us able to live that way. The point here is that if, if you have had all of this done to you through the work of Christ, then that, that has serious effects on the kind of life that you live now. When we're redeemed and restored by the work of, of Jesus, it's not that he pays off all of your debts and then puts you back at square one and then sort of gives you a pat and a blank slate and says, okay, better luck, better luck this time around. Let's see how you do. No. He actually makes us alive. When we were dead before, he gives us the heart and the will to live as he wants us to live. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. This is the beginning of the instruction of, of, of living as a, as a living sacrifice to God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, and we have here in this translation, by the mercies of God... Other translations say, therefore I appeal to you in view of the mercy of God. Because of everything that he has done and is doing in your life, in your heart, now live as a living sacrifice of thankfulness. Present your bodies, everything that you are, to God as a sacrifice of thankfulness. You are able to do this by the Spirit of God who lives in you. We're the place where God lives. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And if His Spirit indeed is in us, well then we also have the wonderful comfort of the assurance, the surety of that, that confidence. Last part of question and answer one. By His Holy Spirit, He assures me in my heart. He assures me of eternal life, and he makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. If we know, if we actually understand the gospel, the things that God has done, that our hearts are turned to him in love and in absolute devotion, yes, I will serve you and I will worship you, my Lord and my God. It all sounds perfect, and yet we do have difficulties with this, struggles. What if you are wrestling to have that kind of assurance? What if you believed every word of this, that yes, this is the way that God works, and this was his plan of salvation. I believe everything that is revealed about Jesus Christ. I believe that lots of people belong to Christ now. And God is doing wonderful things, but what about me? What about me? How can I know that I do? How can I know that not only others, but also me? God has granted all of these things. 
if, if that's something that you're not assured of, then all of that comfort that we've just been talking about is no comfort at all. But God promises to bless you with his Holy Spirit, to make him live in you, and to assure you. Romans 8, verse 16, the Spirit of God himself testifies with your spirit that you are God's child. That's the only way that you can know for sure. God's Spirit makes you sure of this. And this is something that, as the people of God, we have to be constantly in prayer over. Lord's Day 45, we confess that God gives His grace and His Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who assures us. He gives these to those who constantly and with heartfelt longing ask Him for these things and thank Him for them. Fall on your knees and cry out to God for this assurance and He will give it to you. He's your Father. He'll give it to you. You'll be able to see yourself living the way that God wants you to live. Instead of being a slave to sin, you have the ability, the freedom to obey God's instruction. This is how God answers our, our prayers for His work in our lives. We, we depend on Him for this, and yet we, we charge forward in obedience. And as we obediently walk in His ways, it's sort of in retrospect we're able to see, oh yes, obviously, it was God. It was completely God doing these things in my life through His Holy Spirit. And what a beautiful thing. We, we sing so many psalms about recounting all of the great and marvelous deeds of God. And when we recount all of the things that He has done, He is proving his, his love and His faithfulness. And as you look and see the things that God has done in your life, the fact that He has gathered you to His people and He's given you His Word, He has taught you, instructed you in His ways, and even just little by little, you see progress, growing in faith and in dedication to Him. You can see the fingerprints of God, proof that you belong to Him and that He has claimed you for His own. What a comfort. I can see God's work in my life, in my relationships. And I know this is Him because the Spirit of Christ has assured me that I belong to Christ. I'm not mine. This life is not mine. I belong to Him in all things. What is there to fear? What is there to be afraid of? Nothing. My life is in the perfect care of my Father in heaven. And I know where I'm going. I know how this ends. I know, I know what is in store for me because God has assured me of it. What a comfort. What a comfort. Amen.